Thank you, Ross. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, yeah, it was great to, uh, to watch my boys last night in, uh, in the musical, uh, but this morning it's not going to be a song and dance number from me. Uh, the title of, of this, the sermon today is, um, is All Show, No Substance. Um, so, yeah, we're going to find out a little bit more about what is meant by that as we wrap up our series on Amos, the warning signs that Amos brought to the, uh, the children of Israel. So it's the final message in our series on Amos and these warning signs from God that the prophet Amos presented to the northern tribes of Israel. It was a time of prosperity for Israel, but they'd become complacent. They were comfortable. They'd compromised their faith with the worship of other gods, and perhaps most prominently pointed out by Amos, they trampled all over the poor and needy to ensure their own success. They blindly and perhaps unbelievably remained confident that God was supportive of the way they were living their lives. There was an outward appearance of things going great, but inwardly, the nation was rotting away to the core. Although Amos delivered these warning signs from God to the nation of Israel, there are a number of parallels and applications when we look at our society today, both here and around the world. There are parallels in the way that we think about God and the way, in turn, we think about the church and our own lives. When we read through the book of Amos, we find that Israel's issues stem from two things, how they treated God and how they treated one another, particularly those who were not as well off or those who were different. It's these two things that summarize what the Israelite laws and commands were all about, loving God and loving others. This is known as the greatest commandment. The people charged with the responsibility of leading the nation in pointing out and living out the greatest commandment uh, were the king, uh, Jeroboam II, and the religious leaders. They looked and they played the part, but allowed their own ways of doing things to infiltrate and infect God's perfect plan for his people. So enamored with the prosperity and success of the nation, they relied less and less on God and more and more on themselves. They were still a very religious nation. They still carried out the traditions and the rituals, the festivals and the feasts, as they had done for hundreds of years since the time of Moses. These are the practices that God instituted, yet God was not pleased. If we take a step back out of the book of Amos and look at Israel's history across the breadth of the Old Testament, we see a common reoccurring theme. God is far more interested in relationship with his people than with religious practices. Religion was introduced as a tool to remind people of God's goodness and grace and glory. That intention was misused and abused again and again as those tools became weapons to intimidate, to persecute, and to control. What was done and how it was done became a greater priority than why it was done. And so back to Amos. 
The religious feasts and festivals, the singing and the celebration were still happening, but they'd become contaminated with the religious practices associated with pagan gods. The Israelites were also worshipping Sakuth and Kaiwan, which are interchangeable names for the god, the star god, Saturn. In other words, the worship of the stars and the heavenly bodies. Also included in their worship were sacrifices to Molech. Now, few pagan deities are as reviled as this king god, this fire god, with the head of a bull and the body of a man. This idol was made of bronze and used as a furnace for the sacrifice of babies so that their parents would have an easier life. Drums would beat loudly to drown out the screams while the crowd would shout praise for the choice of being able to sacrifice their children. How free they thought they were. And it got me thinking, is today's society any more free? Again, if we take a step back out of Amos and look at the big picture of history, we see the corruption of society happening again and again. 800 years later, in Paul's letter to the early church in Rome, he observed how Roman society was suppressing the truth with their wickedness. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. We see that the people in Amos's time, and we see that the people in Paul's time, and we see that people in today's world have a choice. We all get to choose how to live our lives. We are free to choose to do whatever we want to do. What we base our choices on, though, will determine the outcome. So who or what determines our choices? We could live our lives in a way that seems right in our own eyes. Or we could live life according to the way our favourite influencer on YouTube or TikTok tells us to. Or we could cling to the ideals of our favourite political party. The options are limitless. Or maybe we could go to the one who created life in the first place. Maybe he might know a thing or two about how life is supposed to work and where each choice will lead. Early on in the history of Israel, Moses had led the nation out of Egyptian slavery, where having a choice was not an option. So God began to establish his way of living for his people. As they're about to enter the promised land, God, the creator of life, reminds them that they have a choice to live life with how to live their lives. And he says this, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose 
life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. We hear God's voice through his word, the Bible. As we read it, as we study it, as we memorize it, as we sing it, the way of life becomes clearer and clearer. A couple of weeks ago, Ariana, one of our interns, led us in communion and reminded us of Psalm 119, which says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. God's word shows us the life-giving path. And when we stray from that path, there are warning signs that signal something's wrong or we're heading in the wrong direction. And we have a choice to take heed of those signs or not. It's a bit like, it's a bit like when you're driving a car and you hear, you hear a little flutter under the bonnet and you don't think much of it. But then the flutter turns into a, into a tap and it starts to get a bit annoying. And so you turn up the volume on your stereo and then the tap turns into a knock and so up the volume goes a little bit more. The knock turns into a thumping noise, which in turn lights up the dashboard like a Christmas tree, which in turn turns into the need for a new engine. Not that I'd know anything about that. <clears throat> Here's the thing, though. Things can look fine on the outside. We might even be on the right road. But if we're making choices that affect what's going on inside and we ignore God and his warning signs, disaster awaits. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Back to Amos. Remember what Israel was sowing was not pleasing God. He knew how life was meant to be lived. He created it. Yet here was Israel blatantly disregarding all that they knew about him. We read through the first four chapters about how far off track they'd gotten. Amos doesn't pull any punches. The harvest is coming. Reading it through, it's, it's heavy. It's like, what are they doing? These people, these people are terrible. We're only halfway in and it's blatantly obvious Israel is a lost cause. Amos must have been at his wit's end talking about punishment and destruction. God is going to destroy this and tear down that. He's going to demolish that and overthrow this. There will be wailing and there will be mourning. And still they don't listen. Amos should just give up. But he doesn't, because God doesn't. Warning sign after warning sign after warning sign. And then halfway through the book of, Moses, of Amos, another sign, a familiar sign, a sign with the same promise given to the children of Israel in the time of Moses. Seek me and live. And then again in verse 6, seek the Lord and live. The choice is right there. Twice. It's like there's the exit ramp. Change lanes. There it is. There it goes. 
They missed it. They didn't listen again. And why should they? I mean, the road that they were on was wide and smooth. And besides, look at us. We're still doing what God commanded. We're observing the rituals. We're holding the religious festivals. We're even singing those old psalm songs. God is on our side. The day of the Lord is near. Israel will prosper. Things are looking bright ahead. And in Amos 5, we read this. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake to bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. From here we go on to read what is perhaps the most well-known section of Amos. It's a section that targets the worship practices of the nation of Israel at that time. But it's not hard to draw parallels to the way worship practices are approached in some circles today. But before I get into that, I want to share a little bit about my church experience growing up, particularly around the music side of things. I grew up in the 80s when music in the church we attended was primarily defined by hymns played by my mum on the organ. Then the revolution began. In the early 80s, the introduction of a little brown songbook called Scripture in Song was introduced. It was followed by the blue book, which was my favourite, and then the yellow book in the late 80s. Technology was rapidly advancing with the introduction of the overhead projector. <laughs> the piano became the instrument of choice on Sunday nights only. And through the 90s, more radical instruments were introduced into the service, like guitars and drums. Some bigger churches began producing their own music on cassettes and CDs. And by the time the 2000s rolled around, the Christian music industry was exploding. There were so many songs and styles for churches to sing. And so began what was known as the worship wars. The new songs were too loud. They were too banal and too repetitive. The old songs were slow and boring with words that no one knew what they meant. If the different preferences in music didn't split the church, which did happen in some cases, the church would provide different services to cater for which style of music suited you better. The traditional service with the old, slow, boring hymns and then the contemporary service with the new, loud and repetitive songs. The churches who wrestled with trying to accommodate both extremes in the one service walked a knife edge each Sunday waiting to see who would be offended by which songs were played. Computers were now commonplace and song words were projected onto a large screen or multiple screens. Concert lighting took the place of the simple fluoro lights. I had a little bit of background in music. And in 2005, Humeridge put a call out for someone to coordinate the music 
for the Sunday services. And I put my hand up. But to be sure I was doing it and going about it the right way, I attended a few big church conferences just to make sure I could learn how this whole worship deal was supposed to be done. A famous preacher from the US, an expert in church growth, said that music is the key to get unchurched people through the door. Everything had to be bigger and brighter and louder. The worship experience on Sundays was one of the big buzzwords of that time. So I buckled down, buckled up, and I put the foot down. But I didn't get very far. A warning sign leapt out of the pages of Amos as I read God speaking these words. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Um, wait a minute. What about, what about all those psalms? that talk about singing to the Lord and making music for the Lord and bursting into jubilant song with music. Israel was outwardly parading their religiosity, but inwardly rebelling against God in passionate pursuit of their personal preferences. Worshipping the worship experience. See, God hears the words that we sing. He hears the words that we speak, but he also sees our hearts. And here was the disconnect. It's a disconnect that King David was well aware of and wrote about in Psalm, 100, in Psalm 19. He wrote this, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The, prof, the prophet Isaiah also recognized um, and picked up on this problem when he was speaking to Israel on behalf of God. And Jesus used these same words to point out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders 700 years later. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is, taught, is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. And so that got me thinking a little bit about what are the human rules that sometimes we pay a little too much attention to today? Like how loud is too loud? Does old really equal boring? Do I have to feel something in order to worship? Should sentimentality be the primary prerequisite for the songs that we sing? 
Do I have to use all the right words in order to pray? Is God's favourite style of music really country music? Let us know in the comments below. <laughs> in John chapter 4, we read about Jesus meeting a Samaritan woman at a well. She had questioned what was the right way to worship. Jesus took the conversation down a different path. He brought, the, he brought worship back to relationship. God is more interested in the worshipper than the acts of worship. The true worshipper sees worship as an opportunity for alignment. Jesus spoke of alignment of our spirit with his and alignment to the truth of who God is with the truth of what God says about me and who I am and who we are. Worshippers who worship in spirit and in truth. Now, we know that worship is not just about the songs that we sing or the services that we attend. Worship is an all-of-life response to who God is and what he has done. Now, I want to make this point. This is not, to, this is not at all to say that worshipping God in song and gathering together on a Sunday is not needed. The Bible is super clear that the opposite is true. But our focus needs to be on what God wants, not what we want. But what about all that talk about justice and righteousness? We've been hearing those two words over and over and over as we've read through this book of Amos. How does that fit in? Because we can't forget about this. Just like in Amos's time, our society is in desperate need of rivers of justice and never-failing streams of righteousness. In that same conversation Jesus had with the Samaritan woman, he brought up the fact that people are dying of thirst, not in a physical sense, but spiritually. Living water is found in Jesus. Living water like a never-failing river, bringing justice and righteousness, mercy, grace and peace. Living water that flows through us, his church. As we align ourselves to him, acknowledging who he is and what he's done, two things happen. We love God and we love others. We respond in praise and thankfulness for his love, his grace and his mercy to us. And we learn how to see others the way that God sees us, with love and grace and mercy. If we look back over the past couple of years, particularly in relation to the church, and I'm not talking just about this church, but the church around the world, there's been a quite a significant shift, a shift in people's attitude toward the church, a shift in the role that the church plays in people's lives, a shift in the role people play in the church, a shift in the way that we experience church, a shift in what we thought was important. 
Now, COVID was certainly a catalyst for this change, but whatever the reason for change, the church needs to keep up with what's going on. If a church's only focus is Sunday, we are no longer a river. We're a dam. People downstream are already thirsty. Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Here's where I have seen the river roll just this past week as part of this church here. We've had some people step in to support a lady that has been um, severely affected by domestic violence this week. We have over 20 volunteers helping kids with refugee or difficult backgrounds struggling with their schoolwork at our homework help program. Tuesday night, we hosted our very first winter shelter night, providing a warm and safe place for some of the homeless in our city on the coldest night of the year so far. We've had 80 people put up their hands to be involved in this ministry over the next 12, 13 weeks. Wednesday night, our final session of The Mine was held right here in the auditorium. We've had between 60 and 80 people coming along to that over the last five weeks. People being equipped and encouraged to live out their faith on their front lines, to represent Jesus well with those who don't yet know Jesus. A number of our Year 6 Stumpies kids made bookmarks and came in after their program to hand out bookmarks to the people that were here as part of the mine. It was a beautiful thing to see. Our Stumpies program on Wednesday nights and our youth programs on Friday night provide a place for younger generations of all backgrounds to come together and have some fun and experience something of God's love for them. On Thursday, our facilities were used by SU for training chaplains in their role supporting our schools. On Saturday, our Saturday English classes provide the opportunity to overcome the language and cultural barriers faced by our refugee and migrant community. And I know that there's significant ministry happening through life groups and other programs that happen during each week. Today, we're going to be celebrating Kirby's baptism. Next Sunday, there'll be more baptisms. And in a moment, we're going to be led in communion by Yasmin, another one of our interns. And communion is one of the most important reasons why we gather each Sunday. All that we do, all those things that we do, they're not about what we do. They're about what was done for us on a cross to demonstrate God's justice, his righteousness and mercy and grace and love. All that we do, everything that we do is in response to that. Our lives are to be a living sacrifice for him. All that we do is only possible because of what Jesus has done for us. So through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. 
So let's choose life. Choose to flow with the living water, the river of justice and righteousness, because God is at work. I want to encourage us to continue to be aware of where God is at work, where those rivers of justice and righteousness need to flow. These are challenging times, but an incredible opportunity for us as the church. That's you, that's me, to serve God through serving others. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, I thank you for this church called by you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. Thank you that your living water is flowing in and through this place, out into our community, out onto people's front lines. Thank you for the privilege it is to partner with you, to bring hope, to bring healing to this world. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus, through whom all things are possible. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.